Appamata and its programs are supported by your generosity and your generosity and support makes such a difference. You can find a link for contributions on the website at appamata.org. Thank you. Good morning, everyone. It's good to see you this morning. <clears throat> good to be together in this way. So uh, today, I will continue my uh, series of talks on communities of practice. This is part three. But first, a couple of announcements. Um, so next Sunday will be the first um, Sangha meeting about the, my transition, uh, moving to Chicago. And uh, the uh, process that the board is undergoing and the finance committee. So I'll update everyone on where we are in this process and we'll have an opportunity to discuss it in small groups and ask questions and raise any concerns you might have. Um, so that will be next Sunday during the time that we would be having the Dharma talk. Second, don't forget to vote. You might have missed the fact that there's an election happening um, and I hope this reminder will encourage you to make a plan and turn out to vote in case you forgot. You might remind your friends and relatives as well in case they missed this news that we're having an election. <clears throat> Next weekend, there will be a one plus day sitting led by Lori. Um, and this is what a great time to give yourself a gift of a day of sitting in stillness and silence, right? Supported by your Sangha friends. <clears throat> How refreshing considering what we've been battered by. So imagine a day without Twitter Facebook, without email, without headlines, without drama, just a day of quiet. I think that would be really lovely. So uh, <clears throat> for other information, watch the email list and the calendar on the website. Uh, you, you can tune in on other events that are happening. <clears throat> I won't go into all of them, this takes too long. We're doing a lot and, uh, and I'm really uh, very impressed with all the support and care that um, all of the senior folks are, are taking with this and the council members and so it's, uh, it's great and oh upcoming also this week is the Liberating Dharma class don't forget um, the first one was a great opener um, and now we move into the more interactive parts of this class and I think you're going to find it very very helpful and heartwarming Okay, so I've been talking in this series of talks about the Buddha's core teachings from the perspective of community. So the first talk introduced this perspective and began with the Four Noble Truths and the first part of the Eightfold Path. The second talk continued the exploration of the Eightfold Path from the perspective of community, and today we'll conclude this series with our exploration of right mindfulness and right concentration. So the Pali word that's usually translated as mindfulness is sati. As uh, Analeo explains, a more accurate translation would be something like lucid awakeness. It's not something you do, but a quality of mind or being. It also has the meaning of recall or remembering. In that lucid awakeness, we recall who and what we really are. 
We live in the light of our own being, our ultimate vow. We tend to think of this as an individual faculty or project. The Pali word translated as right, sama, has the more uh, precise meaning of what works, what accords with reality. So what exactly is sati for a sangha? How do we have collective right mindfulness? At Apamata, we teach a relational practice of Zen. That is, we understand that we awaken in and through our encounters and engagement with others. So hold on just a second. I stand in the middle of the different document. I made an a, a extra copy, a different copy of this, so, um, okay, there we go. Um, <clears throat> so as I said, the Pali word translated as right, sama, has, has a more nuanced meaning as well of what works, what accords with reality. It's a counter for our conditioning, reactivity, opinions, preferences, and limited perspectives in its alignment with what is. The Buddha definitely taught that there are wrong views, for example, that lead to greater suffering, confusion, and grasping. So too, there can be wrong mindfulness, which uses that awakeness to what is as a basis for destructive or unwholesome thought, speech, and actions. So it is important to cultivate sati, right mindfulness, together with all the other factors of the Eightfold Path. So what exactly is sati for a sangha? How do we have collective right mindfulness, lucid awakeness? At Apamana, we teach a relational practice of Zen. That is, we understand that we awaken in and through our encounters and engagements with others. Spiritual friendships and the larger influence of spiritual community are the medium for cultivating this lucid awakeness, both individually and collectively. Can a Sangha as a whole have such a quality? I believe it certainly can, and even better, it can foster it through collective practice of the Eightfold Path. So what is this quality of samasati for community? It is when the community awakens to itself as pure potential and collective energized activity, both within the community and as a community in the world. This requires ongoing attention to the processes and presence of the Sangha as a whole without getting caught in paralyzing self-analysis or cycles of blame or criticism. We ought to remember, even as a community, Dogen's well-known expression, to study the Buddha way is to study the self of the community. To study the self is to forget the self. To forget the self is to be awakened by the myriad things. No trace of realization remains, and this no trace continues endlessly. To imagine you are alone in the cosmos is the greatest delusion. You are never apart from anything. The delusion creates a sense of separation, alienation, and despair that must be maintained by sheer mental force in the face of all the weight of evidence and reality. By now, it is more obvious than ever that the same is true for spiritual community. Those communities that create and define themselves as somehow separate from anything in the whole fabric of reality, that believe in us and them, belonging and not belonging, are essentially operating as cults, no matter how large or established they are. They are ever immersed together 
in the immensity and totality of this messy world. We breathe the same air, travel the same roads, experience the effects of climate change, live with present moment circumstances. So how is community distinguished from other ways of being in the world, from the general chaos and noise of everything else? I believe it is through just the collective attention, effort, and activity that is guided by sati, lucid awakeness, that we wake up together in our relationships and shared activity. There are no barriers to engagement in these enlightening relationships and activities. Rather, there is shared appreciation, respect, and care. This is not an easy quality to cultivate. We must overcome not only our cultural conditioning of individualism and self-gratification, but even our evolutionary, hardwired, tribal tendency to bond with our own kind and be suspicious and hostile toward the other. The truth is that the circumstances we face today require collective attention and action on a global scale unprecedented in our entire evolutionary history. There is no other. We must be agents of our own evolution beyond our current state. Sati, or community, means never settling into comfortable complacency. For this collective transformation to move all of us together toward thriving in a life-sustaining world, we need to foster and propagate this lucid awakeness that arises through right view, right intention, right speech, right action, right livelihood, and right effort. How can that transformation happen except through our collective aspiration and vow? Our individual thought world is too limited to accomplish it. So let's consider the final piece of the Eightfold Path, right concentration. In Steps to Liberation, Gil Fransdale explains, with right concentration, the mind becomes unified as it shifts from being scattered, disorganized, and agitated to becoming calm and centered. When agitated, the mind easily jumps between bodily sensations, emotions, moods, thoughts, daydreams, desires, external events, and our reactions to what we are experiencing. When concentrated, the mind settles down and stays centered and undistracted. As we relax into a focused attention, there is a growing experience of unification, of feeling whole with all our faculties working in harmony. A community, like a person, can be distracted and scattered, caught up in trivial disagreements, focusing on the unwholesome, contentious, or superficial. It can chase superficial projects, dissipate its energies with too many programs, or get bogged down with endless self-analysis. In other words, it can lack right concentration. We tend to think of concentration as an effortful focus that narrows our attention to a single point. That is not quite what is meant by right concentration in this final step on the Buddha's Eightfold Path. Right concentration is a wholeness that is effortlessly aligned with what is, carrying our shared aspiration without distraction or fragmentation. In community, right concentration means ongoing dynamic attunement and coherence 
with our true purpose and aspiration, the liberation and relief of suffering for all beings inside the community and without. We must collect our various energies, skills, and resources into a concentrated whole in order to serve the larger good with the luminous power of the Dharma. Right concentration cultivates that collective force of shared view, intention, speech, action, livelihood, effort, and lucid awakeness. It ensures that our collective attention addresses what is most important, wholeheartedly and without distraction. There's a wholeness of purpose, meaning, and action that gives vitality and integrity to the healthy Sangha. This does not mean ignoring or dismissing what is inconvenient or disruptive, or the unconscious biases that afflict even the most well-meaning spiritual communities. Rather, it means bringing all of the resources of the whole Eightfold Path to bear on our process for addressing whatever issues are arising in whatever circumstances we are enmeshed in. When the nation was torn, again, by horrific examples of racial injustice endemic in our culture, and again, awoke to the desperate need for change, not only for individuals, but for whole systems and institutions, there was a predictable flurry of well-intentioned activity fueled by outrage. Protests, articles, books, workshops, task forces, and so on. This has all been repeated historically every time this issue has disrupted the collective consciousness of our society since its earliest origins. Some palliative measures are taken, racial sensitivity training for police, fair housing legislation, prison reforms, and so on. Because the society as a whole lacks right concentration, however, these partial measures are seldom effective or lasting at the level of lived experience. <coughs> Many sanghas initiated efforts to counter the racial injustice, prejudice, and unconscious bias we are all enmeshed in together. There are book study groups, trainings to increase awareness of whiteness and its privilege, and outreach efforts for people's, people of color, who are no doubt weary of this struggle for equality. There is a necessary examination of our own spiritual communities for bias and subtle barriers to participation and connection. All of these well-intentioned efforts are, of course, useful. At Appamata, we wanted to address the issues of diversity, inclusiveness, and access with right concentration, not scattered and ultimately ineffective activity. We wanted to deeply understand, listen, and learn how to be effective as allies, individually and collectively, in the ongoing work of achieving true racial justice, equality, and harmony. Our concentrated vision and purpose is not tolerance or acceptance of our differences, but welcome and celebration of them. These differences enrich our spiritual community and give vitality to our collective journey in the Dharma. We are impoverished by their absence or silence. And in this spirit, we created the nine-month program Liberating Dharma, developed by Circe Stone, Tasha Monroe, Robin Bradford, and Sandra Medina Bohanjo. Right concentration means, then, that the spiritual community does not busy itself with hand-wringing, self-study, or ineffective initiatives, 
but brings itself to meet its fundamental vow with purpose and clarity and heart. We recognize the great suffering that racial injustice has inflicted, the terrible rift in it, it creates in our social fabric. We will never be whole until it is addressed. Spiritual communities have a crucial role in this effort, not only by example, but by providing a moral compass that can shape other institutions and their policies, media, public opinion, courts, policing, education, the workplace. It is now clear that we cannot depend on our political leaders to enact their roles and use their power with wisdom and compassion. They are too often guided by self-interest rather than the public good. But a strong and concentrated pressure from spiritual communities of all faith traditions can have the moral force through their influence on blocks of voters and on public discourse to fundamentally reshape the political landscape and the minds and hearts of political actors, from politicians to lobbyists, aides, campaign managers, and media we must continue to hold them to the highest standards of ethical conduct, care for the public good and for those who are most vulnerable, and wise, compassionate action. This, we spiritual communities have failed to do. Many have been wracked by scandals of their own, abuses of power, finances, sexuality, and ethical conduct. As a result, there has been a great loss of spiritual authority to guide public policy. This was a cultural shock and necessary demolition of the influences that distorted public discourse and public policy through rigid dogma, fundamentalism, and discrimination. However, it has left a moral vacuum in the public sphere, and unfortunately, this has empowered and emboldened the most unwholesome, life-denying, and destructive forces and created unimaginable devastation in mutual trust, care, and connection necessary to the social compact. Now we can see just how essential our role is, faced by the excess of greed, hatred, and ignorance so openly displayed by a destructive president and his administration. Buddhists actually have an unparalleled opportunity in this moment to provide a moral compass that does not depend on dogmatic constructions of sin and salvation, sinner and saved, exclusion and division, and a war between good and evil. It is the Buddhist understanding that all beings are Buddha nature, that all living beings suffer, and that we have the capacity to free each other from suffering and to awaken right in this lifetime. Our precepts offer a framework for ethical conduct that leads to harmony, mutual respect, and trust in our societies without demonizing the other. It breaks down tribal allegiances, blame, and hostility through the understanding of mutual causality and through our vow to live and be lived for the benefit of all beings. Our planet's survival depends on this understanding. However, to take on such a critical role, we must come not from dogma or self-interest or self-righteousness, but from right view, right intention, right action, right livelihood, right effort, right mindfulness, and right concentration. Right concentration in the spiritual community gathers that moral force and makes it powerful. 
It has the power to reshape and refocus public discourse and action from a narrow, ugly, and destructive preoccupation with individual rights, self-interest, greed, hostility, and willful ignorance toward mutual care and responsibility for the whole planet and its inhabitants. So we must concentrate our spiritual energy into a powerful laser focus as a community. We must not squander our precious resources in pleasantries or narrow preoccupations with small-scale disagreements and petty issues, as some spiritual communities seem to do. There is too much at stake, and it requires, above all, the spiritual community's full participation and wholeness of concentration. I have not been the most skilled at leading our sangha toward this public role, collectively cultivating right concentration and focused action. My skill set is more in reflecting the need and possibilities through my teaching and writing, and supporting connection through social architecture, creating the structures that can enable and empower people to create a healthy, thriving, and wholesome community that can benefit the whole world. My hope is that my writing will reflect our Sangha's enormous strength and capacities and inspire us to action as a community. We are always failing forward, learning from our own mistakes and limitations. I hope I can be forgiven for these and that others will be empowered to step in with what is needed now. We must create, not hope for, the future we want to inhabit for the benefit of all beings. The Eightfold Path illuminates the way for healthy community and harmonious society. It can be a framework for shared inquiry and a way to monitor healthy development. We can go even deeper together as we consider the Buddha's teaching, teachings, other teachings from the perspective of community. If this seems like a useful perspective, please let me know and I will be glad to continue and deepen this inquiry. So I wanted to allow plenty of time for uh, breakout sessions, and um, I think, let's see, we have 22 people, so maybe, um, might be groups of four would be good. Yeah. Um, and the focus questions that I have in mind is, first of all, do you think there can be lucid awakeness for a whole spiritual community? And second, how can this sangha foster right concentration, that is, collect and direct its collective energies? How can it express that concentration in the entire Eightfold Path in the public sphere? I'm going to put, I can put these questions, well, I can't really put them in the chat, I don't think. Because um, I, I have them on a different machine. Um, so first, do you think there can be lucid awakeness for a whole spiritual community? And second, how can the Sangha foster right concentration, collect and direct its collective energies? How can it express that concentration in the public sphere? So, and the whole path. share what they heard in their group that was moving or sparked some thought or uh, some consideration or some questions in them, something that you heard. 
But someone else. Uh... Bluetooth disconnected. Hmm. Bluetooth connected. So <laughs> <laughs> you want to um, admit Kathy, I think, John. Her power went out. Power went out. So anything that, that came up that um, that sparked your curiosity or touched you in some way? Um, how how in, if you're involved in politics, it's a good idea not to get into name calling, you know, pointing at a specific person, but highlighting the issues that you're standing for, that kind of thing, to so avoid the us and them kind of thing, you know, that, that sort of, so it's more like highlighting the problems, not, not, not the actual people, not the politicians, that kind of thing. Um. Our group talked about that quite a bit too, <clears throat> just in terms of how, how we go out in the world and, and, and engage. It's very difficult. I find it difficult. <clears throat> oh, were you raising your hand? Me? No, yeah. I wasn't. I, I'm sorry. I'm, sorry. Yeah. <laughs> I was just saying hi. Who knows? <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, yesterday, uh, Buddhist Action Now had a conversation cafe around similar questions. And um, it was interesting how we all kept um, going to what we could do as individuals and how, if, how difficult it is to, what can we do as a, a Sangha to make these changes and, and how do you get that started? And also, um, Nate was talking about how important aspirations are and, and divining them. And then in the Eightfold Path, we have a, a kind of parallel thing with view and intention. Uh, you know, we tend to jump to action before mm -hmm. that. That was something that, that I discovered as we were, we were reading the book that Peg mentioned. So um, well, I certainly don't have the answer. I have, and it's actually been a confusion of my life, I guess, of, uh, you know, I'm not, my mom would call herself a rank individualist. And, <laughs> and if she didn't like a situation, she would change it. She would jump in and change it. And, and how to work in that other one is something um, I'm trying to figure out. So I don't have the answer. Well, I think that we're now in circumstances in which individual action is uh, doesn't have the leverage that's needed. Um, so uh, so it's all the problems we're facing require really collective action, large-scale collective action. Yeah, the, the log, I kept having visions of this log that we're all trying to lift individually and we can't do anything, but we're needed together, so. Yeah, that's, that's the only way forward. The group I was in, I, I wanna say thanks to the group for their, uh, for sharing and for their authenticity about the issues. But what was so striking to me, 
uh, and interesting is that uh, as we were talking, just having general conversation, it was striking to me that we each shared that we had a sense of separation despite, and, and this was why it's so interesting, despite the fact that we're in a Sangha group. And in fact, we just, just got through meditating and, um, and that principle of separateness, the feeling of separateness just automatically became present with us. Um, as we spoke about our, our personal, you know, our personal thoughts and ideas. And it was just so striking how that sense of separateness is present within us, even as a Sangha group and uh, practicing um, to get, you know, practicing together. So it was just very interesting that it revealed itself to me like that. I don't know. What was interesting to me was that it, it fell along different fault lines. So um, for you, it was around the um, gender differences. So um, a female teacher, um, you know, we, ha we have a song that's half female. Um, and, and so that how striking that was for you. And, and um, you know, and so it's, we, we find the um, sources of separation uh, in different ways. But it, there's no question that that sense of separation <laughs> is a fundamental source of suffering. So, and it can't be individually remediated. Like you can't remediate it all by yourself. And also the folks on the other side can't remediate, remediate it entirely because it's, it's a relational effect, right? So we have to work together to heal the experience of separation. But that was very, very striking in our group. Is that spoken about in, in general or since the pandemic? Uh, no, in general. I think uh, issues for, for people of color in groups. Um, okay. Uh, it, whether from not seeing anyone who really seemed like themselves um, okay. uh, or from uh, just the ongoing <clears throat> legacy of conditioning on everybody's side. Okay. I would say that I do think the uh, pandemic affects <laughs> that uh, that that feeling so clearly, but just in general, yes, it just it just automatically is there. It's just a principle that we learn, and it's even though you know it's to our detriment, it still manifests the separateness. The pandemic has given everyone that experience. Everyone, without exception. And therefore, an opportunity <laughs> to look at, get close to one person, one. <laughs> and that goes for us and the global majority as well. We've been more in that position because we have to rely socially, economically, in almost every way on the white majority. But there's no replacements on really looking into the eyes of somebody and 
connecting. Mm-hmm. We, we all have that capacity. So the word difficult, oh, yes, it's going to be the predominant thing. But no, we have a second. <laughs> they keep coming. This is part of the teaching to do something. Yeah. And sometimes if we possess it, it's don't we, we see it clearly. We see it clearly. And we accept it mostly. If you're hurt enough, you don't. <laughs> but, but many of us do accept it. It feels like a critical time with what's happening on the planet. So many species at risk of extinction and all of the, you know, trouble of, you know, uh, losing ecosystems. It, it feels like a real critical time to sort of for people to get together to to do something about that. Um, but not in, a, yeah, as a not not in a political way, not um, not pointing your finger at anybody in particular. You just have been meta, but at the same time, just standing for what was it's like really important because it's if it's there's a lot at stake it feels like at the moment yeah. and um, probably never have wisdom and compassion been more important right mm-hmm. so yeah. it seems to me that we're right right at a place where we really need to think about it as the save the body kind of idea is that is that our sangha is a body. Our sangha is a body. And it isn't like I would just say to my foot, you know, oh, you did the wrong thing or, um, you know, whatever. It's not like I can separate that. We are a body. And our community beyond that is a body. And so if we think of it that way, in terms of the idea of lucid awakening together as a body, then we just sort of do the same thing that each of us have been doing toward a, with our own awakening, but apply it to more complexities that we don't understand than we do about our you know, right toe or whatever it is, you know? but with the same compassion that we need to bring with ourselves. And I think we're, I think we're capable of that. Well, I made the observation that, you know, took forever to raise awareness on the dangers of cigarette smoking, but it took a lot. It took information, it took warnings, it took a whole bunch of things and still, it's not, you know, still you find people, you know, smoking right at the door of some place and, you know, doing the, lack, the last inhale and exhaling inside, you know, it's, uh, so it's, it's kind of hard to, to do this kind of whole awareness. It needs a lot of things to happen. Yes, but we must never be attached to outcomes. Excuse me? Are working on behalf of our vow. Um, but without attachment to outcomes. So we can be wholehearted and we can be energetic and we can be um, strongly connected and understand, oh, that we may never see results in our own lifetime. We may never see what the kinds of, even the kinds of progress that we hope for. 
but this is a, a legacy that we have of all kinds of changes that have taken beyond the lifetimes of the people who initiated them. Right? So uh, still, since we have energy, and since we have capacity, and since we have a mind, to use it in the service of the good is our intention, right? And beneficial action. And, and to do it together gives us more potency. So that's what I'm, uh, that's what I'm interested in. Yeah. Well, I mean, one person isn't really going to make much difference, but lots of people together, that, that's, that does make a difference. Yeah. It does make a difference. And particularly when um, those people have a real sense of their vow and their mission, you know, mm -hmm. it really fuels the collective uh, sort of force. So I think of it, you know, like a laser housing, like I think, I think of this practice like a laser housing, right? So it gathers all this ambient energy and makes it um, powerful uh, by, by uh, making it coherent. It's all, all those photons are going in the same direction. They're not scattered out doing all kinds of other things. So I think uh, of our practice and our sangha as that kind of laser housing that can gather the, co the collective energies that otherwise be scattered in every direction and focus them so that they become powerful. So as I say, I've not myself been as um, skillful at that as I would like to be, but I definitely want to articulate that potential so that we can think about it anyway and it can be part of our collective imagining who we are together. But I think it's time for us to stop and uh, do service. So it's wonderful being with you and having these conversations. I think they're so important right now and uh, very helpful for me uh, to hear from each of you. So of course I only have my own perspective until I hear from you. And that's a big, big improvement. So, all right, let's, uh, let's do service. I think, uh, Joan, you want to...